Hello and welcome to episode 80 of The Thing About Golf, Golf Australia Magazine's ongoing quest to answer that eternal question, what draws people to this game? My name's Rod Murray, and while all episodes of The Thing About Golf are special in their own way, episode 80 is even more so, because not only is it interesting, but episode 80 is also timely. It was 20 years ago, almost to the day, that a young Steve Allen grabbed the Stonehaven Cup to end one of the most controversial weeks in Australian golf. The leaderboard shows the likeable Victorian posted a one-shot win over Aaron Baddeley, Craig Parry and American Rich Beam. But the leaderboard doesn't begin to tell the story of that week. The opening round of the tournament at Victoria Golf Club was cancelled early in the day despite perfect conditions because the third green was deemed unplayable. The move prompted Rich Beam, then the reigning PGA champion, to suggest that it was the first time he'd ever been called off the course because the weather was too good. Eventually reduced to 54 holes, it was Allen who emerged the winner, a victory that will forever be remembered as much for the circumstances of the week as the play of the man himself. Now 49 and thinking about life on the Champions Tour, it was a joy to catch up with Steve Allen to not only reflect on that magical week, but to explore the question, what is the thing about golf? Well, Steve Allen, it's very generous of you to take some time, but it's a pretty special year for you, I imagine. The podcast is called The Thing About Golf, and that's normally our jumping off point. But for you, I think we're going to go a bit different. We want to release this the week of the Australian Open, 20 years since you won it. Does it seem that long, first of all? Uh, sometimes it seems like uh, <laughs> 40 years ago, and other times it seems like yesterday. But um, I think when I think back to all the things that have happened since in my life and golf, it does seem like 20 years ago now. What's your very first memory when someone brings up the 20, 2002 Victorian uh, Open at Victoria? Just, just uh, I don't know, it, just was, it was a sense of accomplishment. Um, I think it made it all, speci- all the more special to be at home, you know, my friends and family uh, at a golf course that I loved. You know, I didn't. I played a lot of golf at Victoria through amateur golf, and then leading up when I first turned pro, the first five or six years, we had Vic Opens there, Australian PGAs there. I played well there a lot. Uh, I remember being excited when I heard. I think we were on the range here at TPC in Arizona in the middle of the year, and I heard that the Open was going to be at Vic, and I was. I remember just really looking forward to it. Yeah, fantastic. And of course, back there again uh, in part this year, which will be uh, which will be a bit of fun. Uh, Steve, did you? Of course, it's the, it was the fifty-four hole Open. Uh, Yep. First day cancelled because of the greens. Did you get to play on the first day? Give us your memories of what unfolded sort of in the week leading up and, and on that Thursday because, of course, it was the biggest story in world golf that week, wasn't it? Yes, it was. It was – I had heard – you know, I, I uh, had to go back to Q school, so I'd avoided second stage in the last week by making the cut at uh, the tournament in Jackson, Mississippi, which, you know, allowed me to play because I think if I had to go to second stage, I wouldn't have been able to play the Aussie Open. So that was a relief to do that. And then I had heard leading up that the greens were going to be really hard, really fast, really firm. And I actually went and had a game with Jeff Ogilvie and Andrew Getson on the Friday before the Open. And we played a couple of holes. And as soon as you drove in, the greens were brown. It was like, oh, I've never seen them like this. I've never seen any of Melbourne courses like this. The week before. <laughs> yeah, on the Friday before. Wow. And, yeah. you know, the, I remember the greenkeeper driving up to Jeff and asking what he thought. And Jeff was like, I think, geez, they're on the edge. He, he was like, oh, you know, we haven't even started rolling them yet. It was sort of like, this is going to be tough. And the practice round was tough. And everyone was talking about it, how these are silly and they're over the top. And, you know, and then the, obviously, obviously, Stuart, the story, you know, goes that Stuart Appleby had 62 in the Pro Am. I think the Pro Am pins were pretty generous at the front, you know, not 
and the tough spots and you know there was still a couple of days worth of drying out and cutting and mowing and rolling to go um so i think to a man everyone in the field knew it could be silly um you know and i got there on the first day i think from what i remember it wasn't too hot it was a nice day it was a little bit of a breeze it wasn't too windy but by the time you got to the course the stories were that there was carnage out there the scores were high uh the first hole that year played as a par three and I distinctly remember, I think it was around a six or seven iron. And the green, it basically, you couldn't hold the green if you landed on the green. So the old design of that hole, you had to, there was a little front right corner that you had to almost land it on the upslope and bump it up onto the green. And my very first shot of the day, I did. So I was, I got made a three on the first and I was pretty happy with that. But I didn't play the second very well. I made a bogey and my par part was just sort of turning low, I guess. And instead of stopping what looked like it was going to be, you know, six inches a foot away, it kept rolling down the tr- down the hill and I had like a three-footer for bogey. And I was sort of like, well, that's crazy because that didn't look that steep. And uh, so I hit off the set, third hole, hit it in the left trees on the third. So I had a shot to the green, but it was going to be a punch, you know, having to run it up there. And we saw the group ahead, which was the group the, the group that ended up having ah, so you were the behind called off. Right. Because that yeah, was the so green. It was, was like uh, the third green was the one that caused it. I mean, all yes, the greens were tough, yeah, but the so third green was. Richard Ball, I think, is, was the guy's name, Bob Shearer and Mark Allen. Yeah. And I just remember seeing hands going up in the air, like, what is going on? And, you know, and there was a delay, and obviously it was a big delay, and then you walked up on the green, and then Mark sort of told me what happened and how Richard had chipped up just short. They all thought, oh, that's good, and they all started walking thinking it was good, and then it started slowly feeding back off. And, of course, then he hits his next one past, and then he rolls off the green again. And so, yeah, and there was a bit of confusion for a while whether they're going to water the greens, which they started to to give the green a bit of a water. Um, and then eventually, you know, eventually we got told it was it was done for the day. And then at first it was going to be 36 on Sunday, and then eventually I think, I don't know if it was by the time I got home or exactly when I found out, but then it was just 54 holes. Yeah, not hard to imagine how it lurched from one incredible crisis debacle to another oh, yeah. under those conditions. Yeah. I mean, everyone's under pressure yeah. and it's all happening on television. It's it, not uncommon to hear in the week up to the, leading up to it, oh, it's playing firm and fast, it's going to be a tough year. Yep. Did that feel different? You must hear that often ahead of the Australian Open, in particular on the sandbelt. Yes. Did you just think, oh, it's just people talking, or did you genuinely think that uh, that might be a problem? Yes and no. I think from the moment that I walked in, I saw the shade of brown that the greens were. You you knew this was like, well, this is – but, I mean, that that doesn't mean that they're going to be unplayable, but once we got out there, and even in the practice round, even the Friday before, this was something that you've never seen the week before a tournament. You know, as as you know, we haven't, we haven't had that many tournaments in the sandbelt for quite a while now, but they traditionally were – firm on Thursday, getting to really firm on, th- on Sunday when it was, it was, you know, I mean, you could, you can come from a long way back in a sandbelt tournament if the conditions are um, quite traditional because a little bit of wind pops up, you get out early, the green's that little bit softer, a little bit playable, have a good score, they get harder as the day goes on and it comes back to the field. Uh, the leaders can come back to the field. So, you know, you always expect that in the sandbelt, but this, yeah, this, this had a different feel to it for sure. Yeah. It's kind of sad in a way, isn't it, I suppose, but it was kind of interesting too, wasn't it? It was talk of the world. I mean, yeah, yeah, that's right. Norman was talking about <laughs> yeah. it the following week that it had, you know, they were reading about it in Florida and how embarrassing it was. It was uh, it was a big yeah. deal, wasn't it? Incredible. Well, about, was- about your own week, Steve, coming there? You said you'd made the cut, you'd avoided having to go to second stage qualifying. So we might talk about that a bit later. There's been a lot of chatter about the US tour and the effect on the Australian tour. And we tend to think it's a bit of a new thing. That was 20 years ago and there were issues about getting home to yeah. play our summer. What about your own sort of game at the time and how you were? 
were feeling and all that sort of stuff. You'd won the German Open in 1998. You've always you'd always been at that stage. You were still one of our promising young players. Uh, I'm not saying that you're not young anymore, Steve, but you're not young anymore. <laughs> I'm not young. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what was your own feelings around that time? Did you think then? Did you believe you could win an Australian Open? Was that the was that the Steve Allen th- thought process? Yeah, I think uh, I was playing really well that year. I'd started off the year poorly. Um, and there was a point in the middle of the year when, again, I was on the range here at TPC and just sort of maybe was thinking I was getting a little bit too caught up in thinking about my swing and not just playing golf. And sort of in the middle of the year, I adjusted my practice a little bit and I really started to play well. I didn't I didn't keep my card. I was in that 125 to 150 category, that conditional category. But the whole second half of the year, I made a lot of cuts. I played well a lot of times without really threatening to win or without really uh, – you know, putting like a great tournament together, but it was just consistent good golf. And it was probably at that point, I think for a period of time, it was as good a stretch as I'd had in regard to just playing well week after week. And, you know, I came down really looking forward to it. And I think, um, you know, funny story, back in the day, there was no real, the PGA Tour doesn't let any golfers bet on golf anymore. You know, that sort of became clear sometime in the mid 2000s, but so um, back then, you know, I, I went online and had a look at the odds. And originally, I was looking on the odds for Jeff because it was his home course, and he played really well that year. He hadn't he hadn't won yet on the PGA Tour either, but he played really well. And it was his home course. So I'm like, oh, just out of interest. I wonder what the odds were. And he was, I think, forty to one. And I thought that was really generous because I thought he's playing the PGA Tour, he's threatening to win, and he's coming back to Australia. And there was I can't remember particulars, but I think there was a New South Wales Open the week before. Yes. And if I remember rightly, it was a pretty, it wasn't as, the New South Wales Open grew in stature more recently, but I think back then it was sort of down at the, you know, what was the old Von Nider tour or the tier two level or whatever. And so it wasn't a big event. And I think one of the guys that came second or third there was up at like 20 to one and he was not as accomplished as Jeff. And I was like, this is crazy. Someone whoever's doing the odds is not. And so out of interest, I sort of looked at myself and I was thinking, well, I don't know. I kept going down the list, down the list, down the list. And I was a hundred to one. And I thought that's, Ridiculous, you know. I'm, did you? I'm playing well. I love this course, <laughs> and I did. I had a bet on myself. <laughs> How much Steve, did you bet on yourself? It was th- uh, I think I put thirty dollars each way, so it wasn't a massive bet. No, but it was. It was. Yeah. Shades of Brad Hughes at the Masters uh, when he bet yes, himself yeah, as well. It's some really right. long odds as well. Yeah. And I know. I know when uh, like sports betting, the internet first happened. I was playing in the European Tour, and I bet on myself in a group one day. And I came to the. I was playing with Ian Poulter before he was Ian Poulter. He was like a rookie, or he was, you know, he was. And I think it was Emmanuel Canonica, an Italian player. And I came to the last hole needing to hold this 10-footer. It was the second round. And all I was thinking about is I've got to hold this putt to win my bet. And I'd never done it since, you know, because I'm like, that's ridiculous. What am I doing? You know? <laughs> that is a, um, that's a fast road to hell for a professional golfer, I would imagine. That's right, yeah. Side betting on so yourself I, and others in tournaments is uh... – <laughs> So I'd, I've never, I'd never done it since, but I did it at the Australian Open and – you know, I can safely say when you when you're thinking about winning a tournament, it's the last thing on your mind. It's not even a thought in my head about any part of it. You know, but it was just a little nice little thing to have yeah. thought that I believed in myself enough to put a bet on and uh, actually actually did win. Have you told anyone that before? I'd never heard that story. I didn't. Know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've told people. Never knew that you backed <laughs> yourself to win it. What do you remember about the sort of the last day, Steve? It's a huge moment for any player to win their national open. I mean, I think most players would say that you've got the four majors, and then their national open comes next. Well, certainly for Australia, which is a bit of a golf stronghold. What do you remember about sort of the Sunday and the emotions and everything? It wasn't like you cruised to victory, was it? <laughs> it was a, it no, was a, a I, I mean, I had my chances to cruise to victory. Mm-hmm. I started off really well. I was pretty nervous, but I was feeling, you know, I really had come to terms with the fact that my goal on the last day was to play well. You know, I, I unfortunately over my career, I'm not someone that's gotten in contention that many times. 
Um, you know, I did win in Germany, you know, but just not that often. And I really just wanted to play well and I was playing well. So I was just really trying to stay sort of, uh, calm and just, you know, do as good a job as I could. And I remember actually saying it in the press conference the night before, look, if I go out and play well tomorrow, and I don't win, you know, so be it. I'll be, I'll be happy. Ultimately you want to win, but you can't do anything. If I was to go out and shoot 65 and Rich Beam and shot 64, you just have to tip your hat and say, well played, you know? And, uh, so I was nervous, but I wasn't, you know, out of control nervous. And I got off to a good start. I hit it really close on the first. And I think Rich, from what I remember, may have hit it over the back or in the bunker and didn't get up and down. So straight away, I was two, two in front. And I think the rest of the front nine, I played really solid. Again, I don't think there was any other birdies, but I played well. I got around to seven and be, remember being surprised to notice that I was either two or three in front at that point. I hit I hit a great shot into eight, which was, which was playing as a par four, um, traditionally a par five, but pretty short. So I hit it in there to maybe six or eight feet and I had a putt, you know, in my head to go three ahead and I've got a par five coming up. And I think one of my faults over the years is I get ahead of myself. I start, you know, thinking about the scores and, and, uh, I missed, I missed the putt on eight and I bogeyed the ninth, the, the par five. So all of a sudden now I was back to, back to tied for the lead. I didn't really, you know, I, I sort of looked at the leaderboards, but I wasn't fixated on them. And I remember seeing Robert Allenby was playing well. Adam Crawford was playing well. And I, uh, and I managed to sort of calm down. It's quite a walk from the ninth green to the 10th tee, and I managed to get myself composure back and played 10 pretty well. But then I hit a great shot into 11, made a birdie, and hit a great shot into 12. I hit it left off the tee on 12, but I was always kind of favoring that side because that fairway opens up with the 13th fairway, and I had to hit it in. So I was on fairway, but it was kind of off to the left. I had to hit it over the tee tree. I hit a good shot. It was in there to about – it was pretty close as well, maybe six, eight feet, and I made that. And so then standing on the 13th tee – I was three ahead, which was crazy because I don't made two birdies. So obviously someone, you know, I think it was Robert had a bogey. And and again on 13, I got a little bit ahead of myself. I hit it short, which that green was really uh, back to front, very steep. So I was always trying to be short of the hole and actually was a bit too cautious. And I three-putted. So now I had to get myself back into um, focus again, you know, and and I was able to. And Rich Rich held a long putt on 14 and I followed it in from something like 20 feet, just kind of curled in and dropped in the left side and it put me two ahead and, I remember at that point thinking, look, you've got to keep knuckling down. And I I always go for the green on the 15th hole at Vic. It's a short par four. It's one of my favorite holes in the world. It's a brilliant short par four, but it just seems silly to do it with a two-shot lead because going for it brings in hopefully an easy birdie, but it can, you know, the, you end up with a long bunker shot or a bad lie. And I just Seven, seven's silly, so not out of the equation. Seven is a legitimate score to have even for yeah. a good player on that hole if you yeah, hit it in the right. spot. So, yeah. so I uh, hit a six iron off the tee, you know, the wedge was, I think the wedge was reasonably good, but it wasn't that close. Par, I don't think Rich birdied. I know 16, you can't go over the back. So again, I was short, hold a great little two or three footer for par. And I did hit a couple of not great drives on 17, 18. Um, I think I, I don't think I hit driver on 17. I think it was either a hybrid or a three wood and it went in the left trap. But uh, I, <laughs> I'd had a horrible fairway bunker history in the couple of years leading up to this. And um, Dale Lynch and I had worked a lot on it. I had, it was kind of like a swing fold of mine that I kind of lean into the ball a little bit and lose my spine angle. And as a result, I would hit a lot of fairway bunker shots heavy. Like, okay. and I, I mean a lot, like it was almost like I was expecting it and we'd done a bit extra work that week and I'd been getting on top of it. Um, I hit a good shot out of the fairway bunker on five onto the green earlier in the day. And then on 17, I had to, had to do it again. I hit a good shot out, you know, made a pretty easy par. I don't think 17 was reachable that day, so I don't think Rich birdied it, but then got on the last hole. I know, I know uh, Bads had made a bit of a run, 
And but as far as I was concerned, I was one ahead of Craig Parry ahead of me, and I was two ahead. Of, I knew I was two ahead of Rich playing with him, and so it's just more of like if I make a four here, I win for sure. But I'm fortunately I hooked it in the fairway bunker on uh, 18 as well, and I had a bit of a tough shot. It was kind of like the trees were overhanging, the lip was a little high, but I hit a good shot to a good layup zone, hit a terrible pitch in. Um, sort of had 20, 30, probably 30 feet across and down the hill. Rich hit his second shot. He, re- he reached the green in two, but he was a long way away. So I was pretty confident he wasn't going to hold the, you know, from 60 feet or whatever it was. Um, and I hit a, like I said, I hit a terrible pitch. I think I was a little bit flustered at that point, but I'd had, I'd been putting well, putting well all week and I had really good feel in the green. So I had this long sort of downhill right to left putt, but I had a good feel for it. And I, I rolled it up quite nicely. And in fact, with the three or four feet to go, I thought it might have a chance uh to go in but it, it it didn't turn as much but yeah so and thankfully rich didn't make it so uh it was i made it a little tougher than it had to be at the end but it <laughs> all makes for a good story now though in hindsight yeah what was the course playing like by sunday you had all that drama thursday and then i imagine there was a frantic rush to try and get the course kind of playable and what how was it by sunday yeah, I think it was back to your traditional, you know, Melbourne sort of courses. Obviously, one day less because they, I don't know exactly what they did. Obviously, watered a lot. I don't know if there was a fertilizer or whatever they could, you know, whatever they put on the greens, but it was perfect on Friday. Mm. So that's exactly what, you know, we're expecting. And, you know, the scores were good without being crazy. I think I was, we were tied at the lead at 10 under after two rounds. Um, and then on the last day, I only had two under to win. So it's not like the scores have got crazy. I don't remember it being particularly windy. So, um, I think it was back to the traditional sand belt, pretty firm greens, but not not ridiculous. Yeah, the neighbours were unlikely to be bothered by mowers, I'd imagine. Friday, especially, and probably Saturday and Sunday <laughs> as well, where they wouldn't have been out there cutting <laughs> the greens, sort of, uh, sort of early in the day. What's your own thoughts about being the winner of an event where there's been a controversial event like that happen? It takes away some of the spotlight from you, doesn't it? it doesn't take away from the win, obviously, but yeah. I mean, I, I yeah, I guess it does, but it. Uh, I don't know. I know. Obviously, I get a lot of questions over the years over, mm. you know, whether it's 54 holes being legitimate. And I mean, I always think the hardest part of winning a tournament is to stand there on the last day and actually, you know, come through. And that I did that. So if there's any, if there's any sort of anything taken away from it, it's not, it's not a, a big amount by me. I, I feel like it's legitimate. If I had been leading after 54 holes and we got rained out for two days and I won, well, I feel like that's a little bit of fortune that, you know. Uh, not without, not that I would complain if that happens to no, me no. coming up, but, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So I think, yeah, I don't know. It just it probably adds to the story. I can always tell people about it. And- it's always struck me one of the things about competitive golf is you can only beat the field that turns up on the day under the conditions that the tournament's played, and and and, and yep. it doesn't matter what all of those circumstances turn out to be. Somebody has to win, and the winner has deserved to win because they played the best golf under those circumstances that week. So it's, you know, the 54-hole thing must become very interesting in light of modern uh, yeah. uh, happenings <laughs> yeah, in the right. past 12 months with Live Golf, although we might come to that a little bit yeah. later. Let's go. At fa- a fabulous win, Stephen, of course. 20 years coming out. You're playing the Australian Open this year, I hope? Yep. Okay. Yes. Then we'll get your thoughts on the mixed field event. Well, you must be looking forward to that enormously back in Victoria. It's been in Sydney for the last, what, 15 years, I think, almost. So fantastic to be back in Victoria and at Victoria Golf Club as well as Kingston Heat. So. Yes. Uh, yeah, it'll be uh, it'll be great to be be down there. I haven't played either of the courses for a long time. We had a Australian Masters of Victoria one year that I was able to to play. I didn't play very well. Um, unfortunately, over my career, I've had to go to Q School a lot, so I've missed a lot of tournaments. I didn't ever quite get to the point where I was keeping my card year after year, and I could just come down. So uh, there was a few years that I did, and then a few years when they abolished PJ Tour Tour School and made it only for the uh, the web at the time, the Corn Ferry now. 
Um, there was a few years where I was able to come down and play a bit, but I am looking forward to getting back and playing in Melbourne. Um, all the tournaments I'm coming down, hopefully, hopefully four in a row. Uh, it'll be it'll be great. Yeah, I think I think Vic is underrated in Melbourne. Very much. I mean, I I grew up playing Woodlands, which I felt over the years was really underrated, but yeah. I think it's got a little bit of a better reputation now. But I always felt like Victoria was the third best course um, behind Royal Melbourne and Kingston Heath. I feel like they're the two standalones, and then. And then I, I always, you know, I always liked Vic as my my third favourite, so that probably helped me help me back then. It suffers from being the neighbour off, doesn't it? Yes, it, it, it's yes. like the incredibly pretty girl standing next to the supermodel. Yeah. It's yeah. you kind of can't. Win. And that's true. And actually, funny story. I so I qualified for the Australian Open when I was eighteen at Royal Melbourne at ninety one. That was the first one, and um, the ladies. I think it was the ladies Victorian Open was at Woodlands the week before the Australian Open, so we got tea times at other courses, and that was the first time I ever played Victoria. Oh, right. I think it was on the Thursday, and we were walking down the twelfth fairway, and you could see the grandstands on eighteen at Royal. Like there was no barrier on the fence; you could clearly see through. And I remember just being really fired up that I want to play in the Australian Open, you know. And it, m- the Monday qualifier was a few days away, and it really gave me a, like a. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this, you know. And I played at Keysborough, and I did. I had a good round, and I made it into the Aussie Open. And another controversial one. Oh, not quite as. No, it wasn't. Sorry, I'm getting the wrong. My years, but 91, the greens were a little bit hard and bumpy at Royal as well. And uh, it was no 87. The when they Riley. Won. Yeah, that's exactly right. And we had, in fact, on this yeah. very podcast two weeks ago, uh, two episodes ago, John Huggins sat down with Wayne Riley's caddy, Lindsay Garden. She's right. a Scottish lady, friend of right. friend of Huggins who caddied for Wayne that week. She told some fabulous stories right. about uh, yeah. about what unfolded there. Let's go all the way and back. I ended up, sorry, sorry, I end up playing a practice round. So I end up playing a practice round with Greg Norman and Wayne Riley. Oh, did you? For that Australian Open? Yeah. Did you get a word in? <laughs> uh, a little bit. It was very interesting. And Wayne. <laughs> Wayne pulled out the uh, belly putter, yeah. or the long putter. The long putter, yeah. And Greg, Greg said to him on the first green, oh, you're done, you'll never win again. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> Interesting stuff. We forget what a player Wayne Riley was, don't we? What an extraordinary oh, yeah, flusher of the ball. Yeah, magnificent yep. hitter of the ball. Incredible. They're fabulous memories, Steve. But, of course, golf starts before that. Oh, I'm going to qualify for the Australian Open. There's a lot happens between the start and getting to that point and then what's happened since. The thing about golf is what we sort of tag the the podcast. What is the thing about golf for Steve Allen? Where did it start for you? What is it about golf that's made it virtually your entire life? On or most yeah, of your life, it, yeah, it has. Yeah, I started playing with my dad at a um, course called Montuna outside of um, Berwick in in outside of Melbourne in the southeastern sort of outer outer suburbs of Melbourne. I'm sure the suburbs have grown now, so it's probably just a considered a suburb. But uh, I would. I don't know. I would hit plastic balls in the backyard with some plastic clubs. And then when I was sort of six or seven or eight, I, I think I was seven or eight, and I went out, played, started playing with dad. And dad really enjoyed it. He he didn't take up golf until later in his life. And yeah, I would, we'd go out and play. And we played this course, Montuno, which was sort of like a semi private sort of public access public course. And we ended up joining. And that, that became where we'd sort of spend most Saturdays. Like dad would often work a little bit in the Saturday morning and then he'd come pick me up and we'd go play Saturday afternoon. Was it the golf? Was it the time with your dad? Was it both? What sort of grabbed you about it? And was it immediate for you? Some people pick up a club. The first time they pick up a club and they hit a ball, that's it. They're hooked for life. Others can take it or leave it, maybe never come back to it. Where were you on that scale? Uh, somewhere in the middle. I didn't. I was, it wasn't immediate in that I loved it and that was all I was going to do. But I did enjoy it enough that I did it all the time with Dad. I, I played Aussie Rules football when I was a kid until I was, I guess I played till about under, what was it, under 12s maybe, and then a couple more years in school where it wasn't as many games. 
But I think at some point around there, you know, I'd, you know, you'd play on like the pennant team and just the competitions that you had. So I think it, I think it was, it was a bit of everything. I think it was the competition. I think, uh, I love footy, but as I was growing up, I wasn't, a, I wasn't a big kid growing up. So I think, you know, the big kids would kind of have their way with me. Okay. Um, and yeah. And then I think just, I don't know. There's a lot to it. There's the history. Like I definitely grew in that sort of early teenage years or just before teenage years to really, really love it. You know, um, you know, dad took me to the masters one year and one of the years that Greg Norman won, I feel like 83, 84. And I remember, you know, back then you could walk down the fairway behind the last group the whole day. And I think I really enjoyed that. And then the history of golf, the competitions, the, you know, the different courses around the world that you'd read about, you know, like I had a, I think it was Golf Club Atlas, that big book uh-huh. that had all the yeah. little drawings of all the courses. Um, loved it. And then, you know, then at the time, obviously, Greg was so good and he was he was giving it a run at all the majors. So you'd get excited to watch the majors. We didn't get much golf on TV uh-huh. in Australia. I mean, I think back before, you know, before Fox and everything, we had, I think it was the, I think it was the four majors plus the Dunhill Cup and uh, the World Match Play. I think that was all we got mm-hmm. from overseas, you know. So you'd, you'd get up in the morning to watch. I loved getting up to watch the Masters, you know, in Melbourne. It's three or four in the morning. You set your alarm and get up and watch it and you know, so I think it was a bit of everything. It was, you know, developing friends, playing with dad, you know, just, I don't know, it was a bit of everything. You can immerse yourself in golf the way you can in few other sports, I feel like. It's all of those elements that you've touched on. At some point in most sports, it stops It stops being a possible. I mean, if you're into cricket, well, yep. there's nothing wrong with cricket, but every cricket field is essentially the same. Every football field yes. is essentially the same. Golf has this incredible, rich world of diverse, and it's such a free-form game too. You're not restricted by the lines. There's no in or out. There's only- Absolutely. Absolutely. There's only hit it again. You hit it here, hit it yeah. again. And, and yeah, for it. sure. And you, 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 know, you grow up and you play with the other kids and people are talking about the Lynx courses and you see St. Andrews and then you've got Augusta with the pine trees and the white sand and the green grass. And the US Open at the time was always the thick rough. And yeah, um, yeah and then- and then. Another thing, obviously, you know, the way the, the way the TV has gone now for Australian golf, we get more golf or Australia gets more golf than ever beamed in. But we used to love the Aussie summer coming along. Yeah. You know, you'd have the, the little tournaments would be broadcast. A lot of them were on ABC and you'd have guys that would, you know, I remember Peter Senior's brother, Jeff, was winning. And I remember, you know, like just all the names of guys in Australia that, that sort of never really made it overseas, but you, you just loved watching them. And they, they did well. And South Australian Open, Western Australian yeah. Open, you know, New South Wales Open, it was it was great. Good players playing entertaining and compelling golf, doing what professional golf is supposed to do, even though they might That's not have been on the bigger stages. There's an argument for a case to be made that pay TV has not actually helped local professional golf here. In I, think, I think that's true. I think that uh, – you know, we like I said, we used to look forward to those events. Whereas now, when golf's on every week, mm-hmm. every tour, uh, it's 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 like yeah, it's become a bit of a saturation. You mentioned Jeff Ogilvie, and I know that he's a good mate of yours. And you did a lot of travelling with him when you were younger as amateurs and those sorts of things. When you sort of played internationally and whatnot, I can recall in two thousand and six, the year he won the U.S. Open. On the Thursday of the Australian Open, he was off early. It was that weird year where we had like minus four on Thursday and 38 degrees on Friday. It was this bizarre kind of weather thing that happened in Sydney. But at sort of eight o'clock on Thursday morning, the reigning US Open champion who's in Australia is hitting off the 10th. I reckon there might have been 30 of us there. If that had been, <laughs> if that had been 20 years earlier, you wouldn't have been able to move no matter what the conditions. People would have turned out in droves to see the US Open champion who was in Australia. Yes. And that's kind sure. of the change. Now it's kind of like, oh, is Tiger playing? Oh, why would I bother going? There's been a bit of an attitude of that you get used to. Yeah. There's sport. definitely like Australians get behind their sport, but it, it has to be the elite sport, you know? Yeah. And I think, I think it definitely, it's definitely hurt a little bit that, 
I mean, it's great for viewing golf all around the world, but it's definitely hurt the local local tournaments a little bit. Uh, it's hurt the spectators too, but we don't go to the golf the way we used to. There's nothing like live golf. Television golf doesn't resemble live golf in any way, shape, or form, including the bad shots you see, which is some of the most entertaining stuff. I mean, it, <laughs> I've always felt terrible about it, but you go and follow Brett Rumford around a golf course, and you're kind of wishing you'll miss a green. Because he'll do something amazing. <laughs> He'll be entertained yep, if he does. You feel that's bad true. about it because he's a nice bloke. It's like, come on, Brett, miss the green. Yep. Show me something special. Was it obvious early that you were good? Uh, to a certain extent, I think so. I don't think I was like a prodigy or anything like that, but definitely, you know, I, th- I think I, I think I felt like I would always compete with the other kids pretty well. And, you know, you're always, you know, back then you're really trying to get your handicap down, which, it's definitely very different over here in the US, the whole handicap system and club competitions. Like, um, you know, you'd always have the, the Saturday comp, which was always trying to win a ball in the comp and, you'd, you know, you'd, you'd, things like that and different competitions throughout the year. But I think, yeah, I think I always felt like I was was pretty good at it. And I think when I stopped playing Aussie Rules football, it was mainly to concentrate on golf. And at some point in that, in that time, I sort of had the idea that I wanted to do it. Um, I don't think I really had any idea if I'd be good enough or not, but you know, you keep improving and as you know, improvement's not always like a straight line. You have sort of rough periods and then you have come out and have a great period. And so I think by the time I was getting towards the end of high school, I knew I would, I knew I, I definitely knew I wanted to do it. And I knew I would be, let's say good enough to try at least. Um, you know, when I was 15 or 16, I joined Woodlands Golf Club. So Montuna, as great a little club as it was, it's not a long course or, a, you know, it's not the course that you really need to be playing all the time to improve your, um, your ball striking because it's quite short. So getting to a real full-length sandbelt course was great for my game. And then I won the club championship there when I was, I think I was still 17, and that put me in the Vic Open because the Vic Open was actually at Woodlands that year. It was like a, you know, small, it wasn't a tour, it wasn't a tour level event, but it was like a 50 grand, I think, total purse maybe. Or um, And yeah, and when I got in that, I just felt like there was a lot of guys in that tournament that were golf pros that I could compete with. And I made the cut. I didn't do anything special, but you know, Robert Allenby won. I made the cut. It made me sort of at least think, look, I can at least, you know, compete with these guys. And whether that meant I would two or three more years and then do a traineeship, or who knew? But at least at that point, I sort of had some confidence that I would be able to Con- to do it. Confirmed that it was at least worth a go, as you say. I mean, if you ended yeah, up being sure. an accountant, it sure. wouldn't it wouldn't have been for the want of trying. You don't want to look back in twenty years, do you? And go, gee, I wish I'd had a crack at professional golf. You yeah. want to have and a then go? I, I remember one time. Um, also at Woodlands, but it was the Victorian Foursomes Championship and my partner and I had missed the playoff by one shot. And at that point, I was in the state team, so I'd been improving, playing well, and I put my clubs away and they were having a playoff on the 10th tee and I was walking to the 10th tee, but I didn't quite get all the way there. I was maybe halfway from so halfway up the first tee, so I was 30, 40 yards short of where the tee was. And one of my friends, Jamie McCallum, hit off and his ball flight was really impressive. And it was like because I was standing away from it a little bit, you could see that, you know, that little bit of a rising ball flight off the driver. And I remember thinking that looks like a tour pros ball flight, you know, but I also think, well, I play with Jamie all the time. And I, so I'm like, you know, like it just gave me that thought of we're, we're actually in the ballpark of being good enough to, to play. Better than you thought you were. Perhaps yeah. a realization <laughs> yeah. that you're better than you thought you yeah, were. Which exactly, is a, yeah, exactly. Yeah, which it's a much nicer thing to find out than that you're not as good as you thought you were. That's a yes. much, it's a yes. much more depressing sort of thing uh, to find out. There's obviously stages you go through there, Stephen. You mentioned that you got to the sort of the state team and I think national teams. That's sort of thing. you start to travel internationally. By the time you're doing that, 
yes, you're an amateur in name, but you're not really a. You're a professional in waiting kind of deal. That's the that's yep, the truth kind of, of it. Yep. At that point on the journey, what are you learning? Who were you playing with? I said I mentioned you and Jeff were good mates. Who were the sort of Australian players at the time who were in that elite kind of level? And what is it that separates out? Uh, Jeff went on to win the US Open, obviously. He's a major winner, yep. an extraordinary achievement, yep. a multiple winner on the PGA Tour, a multiple World Golf Championship winner as well. Uh, yep. What separates out of that level? There's, a, there's obviously a physical element to it. Is there more than that? And what is that? Yeah, more? I think so. I think there's a, there's a desire, a belief. Um, you know, the guys that didn't make it, there's a few of them that you feel like it was either confidence, they never quite had that confidence, or they didn't quite want to do it enough. But there's a little bit, there's definitely a physical gift to some things that you just can't teach, you know. I think Jeff, spending a lot of time with Jeff, Jeff was really competitive and really hated losing. Yeah. And I think that really drove him. You, you could see that in his game when he was younger. He really, you know, you could see him getting upset sometimes when things weren't going his way. But it was always from a, it was always from a source of like, I'm, I, I can do better than this, you know. And I think uh, the guy, the guys that were around at the time, when I, I never really played an, an, in a national team. Actually, that was one okay. of my um, one of my. I wouldn't say regret because I chose to turn pro, and I actually got my European tour card. The European Q School was on the same week as the Australian Eisenhower team, which I may have made that year, but uh, I'd made the decision to turn pro earlier in the year, and it just it was time for me to do it. But you know, I played three years of the state series with Victoria. Um, the guys that were around, Jeff wasn't there in my last year. Um, my first year, David Armstrong was still there. I just missed the, you know, Stuart Appleby, Robert Allenby, kind of Jamie Taylor era of Victorian golf. But we played against, uh, you know, Paul Gow in New South Wales, um, Brendan Jones, like Lee Eagleton from Queensland, um, Greg Chalmers, Matthew Goggin. They were the guys that were were around. Yeah. I played against Matthew Goggin in my first junior state series event. Uh-huh. Um, How'd that go? <laughs> he, yeah, he we we tied, and I can still remember he held a couple of bombs to to tie me on the last few holes. So <laughs> we have a laugh about that every now and again. Uh, yeah, and then and then yes, yeah, so I had I sort of had from when I finished high school to turning pro was sort of four years, and the last three I was in the Victorian Institute of Sport with you know Stephen Ban and Dale Lynch as coaches which they were great, great coaches. And the program was fantastic because it gave you a little bit of scholarship money to travel. So at the time, the Australian system was really good. A lot of little events, you know, you'd have those slightly bigger events, stepping up to the four-round events and then the national trial events. But there was that period in winter where there was nothing really going on and we would we would travel. Uh, so three years in a row, I traveled mainly to Britain with a couple of tournaments in America, but to play things like the British Amateur and St. Andrews Lynx Trophy, um, and then I never actually made it into the US Amateur, but Western Amateur, things like that. Yeah. And they were, I think those were the times when you really believed not only were we going to be good enough to play golf in Australia, but in worldwide too. Um, I think the, the 95 trip, which there was five, five of us all Victorians, Craig Spence, who won the Masters, you know, um, and um, Gavin Veering, Graham Quinlan, and Jamie McCallum. We, we played a tournament in Ireland. We had a choice of skipping this tournament or getting in the night before and playing 72 holes over the next two days. And we just thought, why not? We might as well do it. We've never been to Ireland. So we flew over to play this island. I think it was called the West of Ireland Amateur. And the winner was Padraig Harrington. And Spency had played great. He was right there with a chance with going into the last round and didn't have a good last day. Um, I never had a chance to win. I had a good last day to get up in like third or fourth or something. But Padraig won it. And... The next year when I go back, I didn't know Padraig at all at the time, you know, but the next year when we go back and play in 96, Padraig's on the European tour and he, I'm pretty sure he won the Spanish Open his yeah. first year. 
And that's that that was the kind of thing that I'm like, well, you know, I played that tournament, he beat me, but I wasn't far away yeah. and he's won on the European tour. That gave me the sort of belief that look, I'm at least good enough to get to the European tour, you know? Indeed. So yeah. And then, so, and then it, it's not that easy, though, is it, Steve? There can only be so many winners each year. We anoint in, we in the media are very guilty of this. We anoint the next champion. This guy's going to win multiple majors. You sort of say that in an offhand way. It's an extraordinary thing to win a golf tournament on a tour, isn't it? Let alone a PGA yeah. Tour event or multiple. <laughs> let alone winning a major or multiples of them. We, we kind of lose just how difficult it can be. Yes. Clearly, you're a good player. You're a good enough player. But there's a level, isn't there? There's a level of players who club golfers would not be able to appreciate just how good they are. And yet, you're still a level below that elite level yep. somehow. It's yep. uh yep. And I think that happens with fans in all sorts, all sort of walks of life, all sports. You know, you you watch your football team and someone's not playing good, and you're like, you know, and but the reality is he's really good. He's just not maybe like you said at the level. And yeah, yeah the, the there are lots of levels in golf. There's levels of you know being good enough to be a pro. There's levels of being good enough to be on a tour. Good enough to be on the big tour. Good enough to win. Good enough to win multiple times. Yeah. Um, you, you've been in that. <sighs> That that bubble of players where you've kind of bounced between the secondary and the main PGA Tour a few years on the PGA Tour and then the Corn Ferry Tour. Yep. It's maybe the toughest spot to be in golf in some ways, isn't it? You, there's no certainty it yeah. feels like ever. Unfortunately, I, I wasn't really up and down. I sort of went down one year. I was up for a while and then once I went down, I never really <laughs> didn't, got didn't back get up. Back, didn't was, do the Gavin Coles where he must have gone back yeah. 10 times, I reckon. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so it was a little frustrating. I think uh, personally looking back, I think a couple of my close calls here in the US probably hurt my confidence at the time. I think both years that I'd lost my card were at the end of the next year um, after I nearly won. So I think the first time in Reno, I completely messed up. You know, I definitely, after I won the, I actually remember being, after I'd won the German Open, I remember speaking with Lucas Parsons. He was like, oh, we, you know, you won, you won in Germany, you know how to win. I remember thinking, I won in Germany, but I don't know if I know how to win. You know, that was one of those ones where I, I, I messed up. Came back, other guys messed up more than me, oh. and I managed to win. <laughs> Race to and, the bottom, and you won. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had a, I, I was playing really well. I had a triple. I'd never won a tournament at that point. I managed to, a bit like the Australian Open, I managed to compose myself and say, listen, well, you've never won, so even if you can get back to second or third, it's still a really good week. And then, and I did, and other guys sort of messed up. But when I won the Australian Open and that ability to sort of compose myself each time, I thought, okay, this is good. I'm really going to – and then, unfortunately, my – two big chances to win on the PGA Tour, I, I didn't quite do it. I, I, I had a lead at Milwaukee with a few holes to go and I didn't finish strong. I made a bogey and didn't birdie the last, which was par five. And I didn't play – it wasn't that bad there, but Kenny Perry came home with three birdies and beat me by a shot. And then the next year in Reno was the one that I completely – I definitely messed up. I um, was battling it out all day, hanging in there around the lead. Um, Vaughn Taylor was leading most of the day, Hunter Mahan and – I was playing with Hunter and I'd had a good little run in the back nine. Vaughn had dropped off and now I made a great par putt on 16 to stay two ahead. I nearly birdied 17, but I was still two ahead coming to the last and hit the fairway with my three wood and I pretty much thought I'd won. I was walking down there like, oh, this is all good. I've only got a wedge into the green, you know, and the wedge was just a bad distance for me. I got over to the ball. I backed away again. Um, the camera moved, I got flustered, I hit it heavy into the bunker. So now I've got a long bunker shot. Now Hunter's on the green about 15 feet with a birdie putt. So now I've got to try and get it up and down. I hit the bunker shot a little thin, goes over the back. I hit a great chip actually from where I was, but by this point I was, I'd lost composure and I was, you know, shaking and I, the putt, I pushed it, didn't really even give it a chance. And I think that, that really 
flowed into my game the next year. I lost my card, was down on the corner for the nationwide tour, tour at the time, and played reasonably well through that year, but and didn't not well enough to get back on. But I got back through Q School again to get back up, and then uh, sort of 07, I played well, had had my periods really playing well in 07, but didn't quite keep my card. Same and 08 started the same way, and at um, in 2008. I had a really good chance to win a tournament here in Greyhawk at the end of the year. I had a, I had a really bad start to the year, but at the end of the year I was playing, which was my best period. I had uh, I had a third in Turning Stone where Dustin Johnson won his first tournament. I think I was tied with actually Matt Gogan and one behind Robert Allenby. So all the Aussies were up there. We couldn't quite get the win. And then I had another, you know, maybe maybe it was like 19th in um, in Texas and I came to Greyhawk uh, and a, a fourth in Mississippi. And so I was really playing well. It was definitely, you know, really good and confident. I got to Greyhawk and I played really well, but as the weekend went on, I could just feel my game kind of just dropping off. I just didn't quite hit it, you know, struck it nicely. I just couldn't. And as the, as the Sunday went on, I still had a chance. I was really hanging in there, really sort of hanging tough. And Cameron Beckman, I was playing with was the eventual winner. And I was, I think I was a couple behind him, maybe three behind him, but, a birdie putt on 16 just curled right around the corner, and and so I needed that. And the next hole, 17, he missed the green in a bad spot. I hit a iron shot that was going straight at it, caught the tear a little bit, dropped down, and I three-putted. So I couldn't win now because Cam got it up and down. Um, and as I went down the last fairway, not only could I not win, a birdie wouldn't even lift me up to third. I was fourth, and and this time – Again, I messed it up, but it was a complete, it was a different mess up. It wasn't mess up from tension. It was a mess up from being so flat that I wasn't going to win. It was almost like I didn't finish the hole. I was already done because I wasn't going to win. And I, and I hit a terrible shot, hit it in the water and made a six. And now I dropped to seventh and that just added to the, the feeling of not winning. And, you know, the next year I, I definitely struggled and I just felt like I lost my confidence of, I think the best way to describe it is I lost my confidence to hit next to trouble. Uh-huh. And. You know, you play golf, you hit next to trouble all the time. You know, every hole, there's fairway bunkers, there's trees, there's water. And at that point, and I, I think it just took me a little bit longer than I realized at that point to get on top of that and realize what, you know, yeah. I just think I'd sort of started to play safe. And I don't know if that was a reaction to, you know, past losses or, but it definitely hurt. And then, you know, I, I the next year I lost my card completely. Um, no corn ferry, nothing. And I had to play a couple of years. I played a couple of years playing one Asia, which, was a great experience. Like met a lot of other Aussies I didn't know very well. Um, got to some countries that I hadn't seen before. But it's not where you want to be. You want to be, you know, on the PGA tour. No. And you know, sadly, I, I never quite got back. I had another I had another good year on the Corn Ferry, where I was just outside the playoffs, and then so just outside getting my card, and then in the playoffs, I was inside going into the last tournament. I didn't quite make it, and that's the closest I've been since. Let's just back up a little bit. What do you think might have been different or might have happened had you won one of those tournaments, those chances? It's an impossible yeah, question to answer in some ways, it is, but it is. it's yeah. that razor thin, isn't it, that yep. maybe you win one of yeah. those. Who knows? Steve Allen puffs, puffs his chest out and goes on to yeah. have a Stuart Appleby, <laughs> Jeff Ogilvy career. It's possible, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know. It's, it's weird. It could have, you know, who knows? And the other thing about those mental sort of things is it's almost impossible to – clearly understand what's happening at the time in your mind, isn't it? You can only look back and say, like you can now, I think that dented my confidence. At the time, you're not feeling like your confidence is dented, are you? You don't. You, you can only look back at your behaviours in hindsight and go, well, actually, now I can see that I really started to play away from trouble. I got defensive, and which you can't be in modern golf, can you? This is the other thing. Modern golf has changed too. Isn't it? It, is, it is foot to the floor golf from the first tee to the 18th green. In Pretty the much, year, yeah. isn't it? I mean, I think you still, you still pick your spots in, in yeah. golf courses, but yeah, the scores, the scores are – 
the, the depth and talent in golf now is incredible. Um, I think, I think a couple of things, the track man and the technology is, and adjustable drivers. It's brilliant technology. You know, when we were, when we were starting, you, you had to try lots of drivers until you got one that really went, you know, did you play, persimmon? When, did you play persimmon at the very start or are you too young for that? Uh, when I was a kid, I did. A yeah. Kid, but, but not by the not time you were good, you were yeah. playing metal. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And we, uh, you know, you'd have to try lots of drivers. You get one, you think it's pretty good on the range, and you go out the course, and all of a sudden, you know, for example, you'd play with Matt Gogg, and all of a sudden he's 20 yards ahead of me. I'm like, well, this driver's not right. <laughs> and then you'd hopefully get one that you'd be back up to where you knew. And there was t- there was models where, like I remember, I loved the TaylorMade uh, uh, R-Quad 5. I think it was R-Quad 7 maybe, I don't know. And it was adjust- It was the first adjustable one. And I thought it was a bit of a gimmick, you know, and I took it out in the, on the course and the rep says to me, uh, how did it go? I said, oh, it's not bad. I'm just kind of hitting him a little bit to the right. And he's like, oh, and he grabs it and he does the tool. And and I ripped it and I loved that driver. Like it, it was it was great, you know. I love the, I mean, pre-being with TaylorMade, I love the Titleist 917D. It was fantastic. And then a new model comes out and then like I was always very reluctant to change clubs as everyone that knows me. I had old clubs in my bag a, long, a lot of times. But at some point, you know, you got to move on and you, the next driver might not quite have that little bit of zip, and whereas now you can you can find that out in ten swings. This is the wrong. This is not right. And add to that the level of teaching. I think is better, like across the board. But the access to see everyone's golf swing is fantastic. Yeah. So a kid growing up now knows what a good golf swing looks like. Whereas the amount of even even the best young players when I you know you had you had Tiger that basically turned pro the same time as me who always had a, a brilliant swing. But there's not many guys that you'd go, what a great golf swing that was. They worked on it and they, they were great players and they yep. got better as they went on. But, you know, to the fact that as good as all these young guys swing it now is just amazing. So, yes, they, you know, the, the old days in Australia used to guarantee the cut was uh, the same score as the first day plus one because everyone would get a little nervous. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, well, that, that's not the case anymore. No. You know, if you get a, if the first day is tough and the second day is easy, that cut number will come down and, yeah. Indeed. You're right, the equipment and all those. I'll get your thoughts on some of that and what that's meant for the game more broadly. But I feel like in professional life, one of the things we talk a lot about athletes these days, the players are better athletes than this and that. It feels to me like it's more that uh, science has learned what to target for golf better than it ever has. They can take now a 13-year-old kid who's got some ability and say, right, you need to work on this part of your body because it's breaking down at this point in the swing. And if that keeps happening, you're going to develop this tendency and then that's going to be difficult. So these are the exercises to do. You do this this many times a week. That's going to fix that. And then you'll have a different – they're almost building golfers in a way, aren't they? And that's been a huge yeah. change. I imagine you would have been probably at the start of that at the Vic Institute of Sport, Ramsey yeah, McMaster had, and all had, that sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah, Ramsey was there and Vern McMillan. We had we had really good good people looking after us. But um, you're right. And I just think the ability, the tech, technology to measure everything yeah. these days and really – Find out what works and what doesn't is 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 crazy. When you put it all together, um, it, it's it's leading to a lot of genuinely good golfers at well, young ages. You get Dustin Johnson, don't you? I mean, he's got that one yeah. oddity in his swing, which is the you know the wrist at the yep. top. But what an extraordinary! And he is an incredible athlete, isn't he? I mean, you yeah. just you've only got to look at him walk to know that he could have picked his sport <laughs> and he would have been right. he he would have been good. Has that all? What's that all meant for the game, Steve? Has that hurt you, helped you? We often talk about, you know, in the persimmon days, you could really separate yourself by being an amazing driver. We look at Rory these days and go, what an amazing driver. Not much of an advantage, really, because lots of guys, I mean, all guys hit it yep. good and long. Uh, has it been a good I thing, think, a bad thing? Or? I think if I was in the prime of my career age-wise, I think it would have helped me. It certainly would hurt the guys that were, like, the best ball strikers, like, you know, like a Greg Norman. It would have hurt him. I mean, he would still be amazing, but... There's no doubt that he had such an advantage with the driver, whereas like all the good players drive it like that now. 
it hurts me right now because I'm getting older and all the yeah. kids hit it a long way past me. <laughs> so, there's more so, to it. Uh, there was that we had Peter Senior on this program, and I sort of put that to him. I said, you know, you still some. He won the he won the Australian Masters at the age of 57 yep. over a bunch of flat. Oh, that's just unfeasible. Amazing, extraordinary. And he just said to me that, that his thought process is this: forget about how it happens. If I shoot 66, somebody has to shoot 65 to beat me. For sure. And you can For have sure. all the yardage you like and you can hit all the shorter clubs in it. It might, might not make it easier, but if I can put that number up, you have to have a yep. better number. And that's really yep. – that's still true, isn't it, in a way? That's true, yeah, for sure, for sure. So but I think uh, I think there's certain courses that give, you know, the shorter hitters a, a chance and Melbourne particularly is like that because yep. there's a lot of controlling your golf ball and Peter was – you know, Peter was brilliant. He, I mean, winning the Australian Open at the Lakes as well. Yep. He was in his 50s yep. plus the Masters. And the PGA uh, in his 50s. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah. you know, you, you look back to, say, Tom Watson nearly winning the British Open yeah. that year. Tom Watson, at that point in his career, couldn't do it on a regular tour event no. because of the lushness and the greenness. And the driver it would have been too difficult. It would have been too much of a handicap. But on those courses where it's about actually controlling your flight, that's when the guys that uh, that don't necessarily hit it far can still compete, for yeah. sure. Feels unlikely that Pete Senior would have won that Masters had it been played at the Australian. Do you know what I mean? That, yeah, maybe. But that, yeah. that can get pretty firm too. Yeah, true. Although yeah, I, yeah. I watched Peter O'Malley hit three wood into the first there when the two guys he was playing with were hitting eight irons. It's like, wow. <laughs> Peter's, Peter's as good as golf gets to go. Watch Peter O'Malley play golf still to this day. He hits it on a, yep. on a string, but it's like, wow. That's a, yes, he does. That's giving up a lot. <laughs> three yep. wood. Yeah, uh, it is. It is. Too What's, where's your golf now, Steve? You're at that kind of – you're 49. Uh, I imagine yes. you probably don't have any champions to a status guaranteed. You've been no. doing a lot of Monday qualifying in the last couple of years and playing all over the place. Two questions. Why didn't you go and get a job somewhere instead of doing all of that? Is that madness? <laughs> Is that a mad way to spend your life? I imagine it's like a roller coaster. And two, what's what's coming up then for Steve Allen? So uh, why I didn't get a job? I think when I lost my card on the Corn Ferry, I thought I would just get it back. And it didn't happen. And then... I had a, so I, I played, I think, I think 17 was my last full year. So I gave 18 a year of Monday qualifying. I didn't do particularly well. But 19, I played really well in 19. I Mondayed into three tournaments on the PGA Tour, which I didn't do any good in them. But, you know, three times in a, almost in a row that I Mondayed, I'd, I'd come really close to a lot of other times, other tournaments that year, um, you know, missing a couple of corn ferries by one, a couple of PGA Tour events by one. So I was really playing well. I actually got sick at Q school and couldn't play Q school, which really hurt me because I f- was fancying my chances at that point. Um, and so I think then you just rolled into COVID. And then that was like, now, you know, so quite, here we are in 2022 and there's been a couple of years lost, yeah. hasn't there? Really? Yeah. yeah. And now, and now I'm that close to the champions tour that I think that I've got my eye on that. I mean, uh, Steve Elker is my new hero. You know, I grew up idolizing Greg Norman. I think Steve Elker is my new, <laughs> my whole, new hero. There's a whole um, bunch of us in that in that age range, Steve, that are going, go, Steve, go, Steve, go, Steve. Yeah, so, um, and I, I have been, I have had a little bit of, uh, I have had a job the last couple of years. I've been teaching at Arizona Country Club. A fellow Aussie, Nigel Spence, is the head, uh, the director of golf and just happened to bump in at him into him at a point where his, his instructor had left and, you know, I was looking forward to, I was looking at the year and I wasn't, at that point, I was not that excited on doing a lot of Mondays, you know, starting to lose a bit of money. It's sort of like not- It's an expensive hobby, not much it? fun. Professional yeah. golf's a very so expensive it hobby. <laughs> it is. So I sort of last, well, you know, probably what, 20 months now, I guess I've been, I've been doing that. Um, but he also gave me the freedom to actually play a little bit too. So I was aware that I was getting close to the Champions Tour and I feel like while I'm not hitting it uh, as far as the 
you know, the kids these days, I'm not, I haven't lost that much distance. So I feel like if I can get out there, I'll be able to compete. So I definitely have my eye on that now. Um, but I, I've actually enjoyed teaching a bit more than maybe I thought I would. I was going to ask you because fun. it'd be yeah. like extracting teeth for some tour pros to to consider teaching. Yeah. <laughs> They'd rather extract their own teeth than do it. What have you found yeah. about it that you liked? And you said you were surprised. What did you think it was going to be like and what's it been like? What's uh I, I don't know. I just I, I felt like I, I would just enjoy enjoyed meeting it's just a whole new new club that I'd never been at, new people. Um it's you know, it's one of the nicer clubs in Arizona. Hasn't got the hasn't got the profile of like the Whisper Rock or the clubs up in the desert. It's like a parkland course, but it's sort of sort of near the downtown area. So it's it's got a good membership and you know, so you just I don't know, just enjoy and meet new people and you, you actually get a sense of enjoyment when you really help someone out with their game. Um there's a lot of golfers out there that uh, that, <laughs> that are bad. Quite, Steve, <laughs> like get some. There's a, put it this way: there's a lot of bad information that goes out that people get little tips, and you know. And I've definitely had a new perspective since I've been doing it, even to the point when I'm hitting balls at a range or somewhere where you hear a guy giving another guy a tip, and you're like, oh, "I'd like to walk over and tell him not to do that because that's gonna, it's not gonna help him," you know. <laughs> Who are you teaching, and what are you finding? Uh, that you're learning from that experience. So there's one one example, obviously, the, the bad information out there. But do you learn something yep. as a tour pro from people who are really struggling, perhaps, to get the airborne? Are you teaching people at that level? Who are you Who are you working with? Um, it's a, it's a mixture. It's it's just the members at Arizona Country Club. So they, uh, I've had I've had a couple of juniors that are sort of promising players um, through to uh, through to a few beginners. And I think I think the biggest thing I've learned is that like that everyone handles information differently. I think I've got definitely, <laughs> I've definitely got more empathy for Lynchy and more recently Steve <laughs> Dalby that's been helping me out here in Arizona. That I've been doing the same things wrong for years, and I'll, you know, go and see them or email them a swing, and they're probably like, oh, "Come on, it's the same thing." I've told you, <laughs> Lynchy, I've told you this for twenty years, you know. And I think it helps when I've only, you know, there hasn't been that many people that have done a string of lessons like the way the club seems to be. A lot of people are like, "Oh, I'm not playing very good." Can I? And I've had I've had quite a few, but as you as you go, you learn people's patterns, and that really helps to help their improvement. Because a one off lesson, you can see what they're doing wrong, but you've got no idea that their pattern will come back, or that you know that the, you're going to give them a, a tip or, or something to work on, something that's going to help them. But they have to um, they have to believe it and trust it, and also that when they come back, a lot of times they think they fixed what you sort of had suggested in the first place and come back and they think there's something else going wrong. It's the exact same thing, which really does go with my history of doing the same thing. <laughs> Why don't you people so, – oh, now I get it. That's right. It tells us something about golf, the game, and the people who play it, though, doesn't it, as well, Steve, in that the reality is most of us are not prepared to put any work in. That's the truth of it. We'll buy a yep. new club and think that'll fix it. We'll go and have a yep. lesson. I'm going to have a lesson with Steve Allen and then my golf game yep. will be fixed. And we genuinely yeah. believe it, don't we? The last thing we're prepared to do is actually practice and work. Yes, and and it is funny in golf because every now and again there is a swing thought or a, a swing, you know, tip or a drill that has immediate effects. But more often than not, it takes some practice, it takes some work to, especially if, you know, especially people that are older that have been in their in their swing for a long time. You've been doing it a long time. One little tip is not necessarily going to fix everything straight away. And I think, uh, yeah, I've I've got a great uh, admiration for the you know, the best coaches in the world, the Lynchies and the Bannies that have been doing it for a long time and really, you know, really accomplished. 
Yeah, dealing with idiots like you, who if you just listen, they could turn you into the world's That's best right. player, but you just won't do what That's you're right. told. It's, it's, like, it's like you don't <laughs> yeah. trust the uh, the information. What about your own relationship with the game, Steve? Over all of those years, has it been rocky? Have there been periods where you've hated the game, or has it always been? What is your do you are you want? Lots of tour pros don't actually love the game; they're just good at it, and it's a job thing. And that's yep. probably a good thing. That probably helps you be a better player than those who are so invested in it that all of their emotions get poured into it. What's your relationship with the game been like over all that? Uh, yeah, good, good, good question. I don't know it's I, I, I still love the game for sure. I think if and when I sort of retire, I don't know if I would want to be someone that plays all the time. Now I've done it for so long. Um, I my my kids all play and my oldest son Liam 16 is sort of starting to play pretty well and and his younger brother Joey they both just finished their high school season they're playing playing golf so I would enjoy playing with them I don't know if I would be someone that went to the club every week and just had a hit anymore but I don't I don't hate the game I you know I I enjoy it I've there's lots like you said all the things we talked about before I still love I still love like Playing a good golf course, playing a great golf course for the first time is is just one of those great experiences in golf. And then also playing a hidden gem that you've never heard of, mm-hmm. you know, is is a fantastic little. You go play a course, a course that's better than you think it is. So I think I think that aspect of it, I still love it, but I just think I've done it so much. I think it's always been part. Competition has always been part of the actual playing golf. Like I think I'm not someone who would just go out for a hit and just play nine holes for for the fun of playing nine holes. It's always been a little competition. If I play with people, I like to have a yeah. you know, have a game, have a bet, whatever. It's I was going to ask so you about. Think, do, you, uh, do you play any social golf? There are two pros who do. There are some players. Clayton's is a perfect yep, example. Mike Clayton is never off the golf course. If there's an opportunity yes. to play golf, he's right there. Other players just they cannot stand the notion of playing with a bunch of. Uh, Peter Senior goes on holidays with his mates who play off twenty. They go on golf right. holidays. What is wrong with so I him? Think, <laughs> That's bizarre. <laughs> I think uh, I think I I don't mind playing social golf, but it's almost always when I'm getting ready to play in a tournament uh-huh. or something. So I I wouldn't if I've you know if, if let's say right now I wasn't coming back to Australia and there was no tournaments till next year, I definitely wouldn't be playing social golf in the next couple of weeks. You know, but I don't mind doing it. But it's still it's it's with me with the eye on actually trying to. It's got to be get for ready a reason. To play. Yeah, it's got something yeah. to do it. And what about you mentioned both of your young blokes play. Uh, what if one or both of them came in and said, oh, I think we'd like to think about doing this for a living? What would be your advice? You happy about that or do you want them to be? Yeah, accountants? absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's obviously there's downsides to everything, but if you can, if you can, you know, I've, like you said, I've basically played golf my whole career. I had a couple of part-time jobs before I turned pro and I've just started to do a little bit of teaching now, which is still in golf. And, you know, it's, it's a pretty good way to, it's a pretty good way to live. I've got to travel all over the world, you know. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell someone not to do it. You've, um, you've slipped through an entire life without ever having a job interview. Think about <laughs> that. Ever, well, <laughs> Have you? It's been a long time. Yeah. <laughs> Actually sitting down and having to do a job interview and, you know, what, what's your best uh, I, work, I, worked in uh, Mc, I worked in McDonald's when I was 16. Uh, Safeway, Safeway when I was just before I turned pro and one, one summer in the Puma warehouse, which was that one I didn't need to interview because uh, one of the members at Woodland had set it up for <laughs> me to right, help me out. Because you can play golf. <laughs> There's a reality, is there not, in America that if you can play golf, much more so than here, life is very different, isn't it? If you're a good golfer, you, you can be a really good amateur player. It's a very helpful thing in the business world in the US, is it not? Yeah, I think so. I think uh, I think always been able to play with other people and mm. I'm sure it's, it's, it's one of those things you could always use to – in business and play with 
develop relationships, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And what about living I in America? It's, Sorry, Steve. No, no, go ahead. What about living in America? How have you found that? Not everybody loves living in America. You kind of have to if that's your job. And I know that you're a Victorian boy through and through. I think you've, do you follow St Kilda? I know Jeff follows St Kilda, yep. I think. And, yep, Saints fan, yep. Yeah, and I imagine you still do, even though you've been in the States. How long have you lived in the States for now? I lived overseas. I do. Um, what do you miss about Australia and what's, what's been good about that experience of living in the States? Uh, obviously, miss miss my family and friends from home. That that that's the most thing. Miss going to the footy on the Saturdays. Um, I definitely, I think, I would have loved to have done better in my career so that I could come home more often, bring the family more home more often. And unfortunately, when my kids were sort of getting to that age of school, is when I'd sort of lost my card. And then, because we, my wife and I had uh, intended on doing some homeschooling at least until a certain age, so we could do a lot more traveling. But um, yeah, that's that that was the downside of sort of losing my card and then you know playing on the corn ferry tour even on the good years you don't you don't make enough money just to be traveling all over the world all the time so uh yeah that's disappointing i've i've i was actually talking to my wife about it the other day it's at some point when i'd lived here for an, enough period of time even though i was always excited to go home to australia i was kind of not i was sort of sad to leave here too so i've, I've grown to love both places i think you got two um, homes steve you're lucky yeah, that's right. I'd, I'd, you know, I like I said, I definitely had no plans on being like not getting back to Australia as much as as, as I have. But uh, like, there's a lot of great things about the US. Like the sports are fantastic once you get into them. Every day of the year, the sports on. You know, one season just rolls into the other. As as a kid, I always loved football way more than cricket. So even though I watched a bit of cricket and enjoyed it, it wasn't something that I that I loved. So. I think the the saddest day of the the year was when the grand final was finished and there was no footy until February or March, you know. Um, but that doesn't happen over here because you just roll into the next sport. And um, so I've, I've over the years I've sort of enjoyed all the sports here. Um, you know, it's a great country for golf. Hmm. I mean, so many of the best golf courses in the world are here, and they are amazing. And there's, obviously, there's so much money in the country that that people, great golf courses can be, get built. Um, so yeah, um, but definitely, definitely miss Australia a little bit. I'm really looking. I haven't been home since pre-COVID. So wow. right before COVID was sort of probably the Vic Open where I actually saw you. In yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. At 30th Beach, and you know we went to New Zealand after that, and then I was back over here, and that's when the whole COVID thing kicked off. So I'm I'm really looking forward to getting down. And the world closed down. You mentioned something there that I meant to ask you about um, as part of this because obviously you've been playing the game for a long time as a professional. I'm sure you've got some thoughts about where professional golf has had has got it right and wrong. You talked about the AFL and the disappointment on Grand Final Day. No more footy until February. There's something in that, isn't there? And it's a mis- is it a mistake that golf has made that we went to having no off season? Uh, possibly. It's it's an interesting one. I feel like the PJ Tour is always trying to uh, you know always trying to push the envelope and get bigger and better and bigger and better. And to a certain extent, I feel like the tour was built on just going week in week out to a lot of these places. So a lot of these events, good events are going to get left behind with the whole way golf is going. Things like, uh, you know, the Canadian Open never gets the, the the plaudits and the attention that it deserves as a national Open. The crowds there are always fantastic and they get behind it and it kind of gets bad dates in between world golfs and majors. Um, Greensboro, for example, is a tournament like Sam Snead won it, you know, eight times, some silly amount of times. Yeah, it was eight, yeah. um, and that's that's the week before the FedEx Cup starts. So, yeah, it's it's frustrating, but I, I feel like that's kind of the way of the world, isn't it? Everything's always trying to change and get bigger and better and get more of a share of the market and get more views. And, you know, it wasn't that long ago, the AFL finals, when I was a kid, it was a final five, final four, final five, now <laughs> it's eight. eight. You know, cricket's going on all over the world all the time. So, yeah, I partially I, I agree, but I I don't know. 
unfortunately, I think from the PJ Tours perspective, if you had a big off season, all that would mean would be there'd be more money somewhere else and all the golfers would go play for somewhere else. So I'm sure they're looking at it as to why wouldn't we try and have a season. Hmm. But uh, like, I guess the point, if you take a, if you pull back and take a broader look, that would actually be a healthy thing for the PGA Tour because golf flourishes in other countries and the best players from those countries yes. come and make the PGA and, and- Tour better. Yes, true, but I'm not really thinking about Australia because I'm thinking about China and China, South Africa, uh, Japan. Uh, yeah, but it, it, it's not going to be it's not going to be the little events. It's not going to be. It would be great for Australia. Australians would come back more, but you're still going to have to pay all those guys mm-hmm. lots of money to play. So it's it's going to be those big silly season events that go on. You know, you'll have more shark shootouts and uh, skins games and things like that. Oh, so don't, don't, you know. don't, don't. Yeah, I know. <laughs> we, don't, <laughs> we don't need that. What's been your take I mean, there's on no, there's, What's been there's your no take doubt on that it? the tour going to the to the FedEx Cup, like the, the wraparound season has hurt Australian golf, but it's only sort of it, – it, the way I look at it, if, if I'd ever got to the level where I was good enough that I'm competing in majors to win consistently and I've got my card locked up for a long time, the few events that are on here – aren't going to stop me coming back to Australia. It's more, it's all of your stock standard tour guys that can't That's right. have to play. They're the guys that aren't coming back, you know. Greg Chalmers, um, Greg Chalmers Matt Jones, yourself. Uh, yeah. The, the, exactly. They're the guys who they have to yeah. stay and keep them. Like so you it, in it, 2002, you, you had your Q school thing to think about. Yep. Had you not had that good finish, yep. you wouldn't have been even back here. You'd have been staying in the States to, yep. to go to the next That's right, yeah. What's been your take on Liv? It's been the talk of the golf world, and I imagine everybody that you come across, and you've been closer to that part of golf than most of us. What's been your take on it? And can you see in any way how it ends up? Uh, I can't really, I can't really see how it ends up. Me either. How <laughs> sort of stubborn both sides are at the moment. I think I, when it comes to the players, you can't blame them for taking, oh. it's such a huge amount of money that it's, it's, it's hard to say no to. I think, uh, I think it's probably disappointing the way that it's just, you know, that, it, that lives trying to just poach all the best players, but, they're trying to set up a tour. Uh, it's 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 hard. I don't know. I, I I wouldn't say I love it, but like I said, I can't blame any of the players for doing it. It would be very hard if they, you know, not that I was in a position that I was ever going to get offered, but it would be very hard to be, you know, like most of the players that started with Liv, they were all on the, let's say, the backside of their career, yeah. still really good golfers, but not necessarily going to be as dominant or as yeah. accomplished as they were. And, you know, they're getting the opportunity to play for way more money than they otherwise would. So, you know, I can't blame them at all. Interestingly, they've also, the other end of the market is what they've poached, which is a couple of really promising amateurs who've done nothing to prove that they're going to be good pros and they've grabbed them as well, which is, yes. we were just talking yesterday about Harrison Crow and he's going to delay turning professional because he won the Asia Pacific and he gets a start in the Masters and the Open. And that's all true, except that unlike ever before in history, there's a, there is a possibility that Greg Norman might come to him with a great big check and say, well, yep. why don't you come and join yep. Live instead? And that's something that you've got to legitimately consider as a, as a player. There's no guarantee, as, as person, you well as know. Player, yeah. yep. No guarantees at the age of 22 just because you've won this and you've won that. You, it's all very promising, but it's not a check. Absolutely. And a check yep. is something that you can put in the bank and yep. never, never have to worry that, you know. So that's it's really interesting in that way and what has changed. Perhaps the biggest change, Stephen, I'll be very interested in your thoughts on this because I think this is maybe generational. What Liv has essentially done is turn professional golf into a contracted sport. You now get paid to play the tour. The DP World Tour announced overnight their new schedule and a guaranteed 150,000 if you play, if you're in a certain category and you play a certain number of events. Uh, Golf's not cheap to pursue, as you well know. Nobody needs to explain to you what it costs to travel around playing golf. That feels like a fundamental shift in professional golf to me. Is it bigger than we are perhaps giving it credit for? And will it change the game in any way, do you think? 
Possibly. I think that is something that has been coming for a while because particularly on the PJ Tour, the big events, the PJ Tour, the majors have been doing it for a while. But if you go into a PJ Tour event and you miss the cut, you're on the hook for all your expenses, your caddy's expenses, and for that week you've lost money. How much, Steve? And I think give people an idea how much. Uh, dep- we're not talking uh, five, we're not talking two hundred, no, are we? It's ten thousand, maybe, five, ten thousand. It depends on who you are. I mean yeah. it's it's a depends on how nice a place you stay, if you've got yeah. your family travelling. You know, yes, Papanovic used to have his whole family travelling every week. So and you know, he was a stylish guy. He wasn't staying in the in the <laughs> Motel Six. He was at the nice hotel. So I think you you're talking I think your standard, you're probably talking four to ten thousand, yeah. depending on your a, level of, you know. A week. So <laughs> Yeah. So if you're a rookie coming out on the tour, mm-hmm. like, yes, yes, you might have some sponsorship. Sponsorships aren't as good as they used to be. You might have some sponsorship, but if you have a run of a month of missed cuts, you, you could be basically conservatively 20 grand down in that month. And I think that when the tour makes as much money as they do, when the tournaments make as much money as they do, I just think that was coming at a point where the players would at least get a, at least get their expenses paid for the week. So I, I'm not surprised that that's kind of happened. I feel like it was it was one of those things that was kind of due. It's it's very when you look at the you know you look at the big tournaments, the majors obviously they've been doing it for a while, paying everyone that's in the field. Yeah. But they should they make so much money from the tournament, and you're the person that's out there putting on the show. Even if you have a bad show for that week, even if you play terrible, you're out there, and you'd be the only one going home negative. That's that doesn't seem right to me. How, so, how far down the food chain should that go? What happens when it's expected that guys who play in Australia should be paid yes, to and, play for the season? Is that feasible? That's, that's obviously the tough question because golf started where they only had enough money to pay the people that played well. Um, and so you had to have some performance level on it. But over the years, the big tours, you know, I, I'm not sure how healthy the DP World Tour is. You know, I haven't followed it closely enough, but clearly the PGA Tour should do that. I when it comes to smaller tours, I don't know. That's a tough decision. They have to – them and their members obviously have yeah. to work that out. But I think that, you know, I, I, I don't know. That's hard. The argument will be that it potentially – and this is the argument about a lot of the places you've gone to live. It'll dull the competitive sense. You're going to get paid anyway. Why do you need to worry too much about yeah. it? Is that a well, realistic I, You know what? Concern? People – so the PJ Tour have announced, I think it's – if you're a member and you play 15 events, it's $500,000. Well – Yes, that might. There might be some people that have that attitude. Someone that's probably getting to the end of their career, or someone that's not that motivated, they're going to be gone pretty quick. Because if you if you're if you've got if you're dulled, you'll be out. So uh, there's there's so many kids that are getting ready to play that 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 won't. I don't think that'll hurt at all. I mean, it was a bit like over the years. Yours people always used to say, and I never heard him say this. So this was um, pure hearsay. But that Tim Fincham didn't want the web nationwide. Nike Tour purses to be too high because he didn't want anyone to be comfortable on yeah. the Nike Tour. Well, that's that was if that was true, it was the silliest thing I've ever heard because, first of all, you have to play really good to stay on the tour but not go up but not lose your card. But then the PGA Tour was playing for te- – it was 10 times. Now it's probably more, but it was 10 times what, yeah. you know. So who who in their right mind would say, yeah, I'd love to earn 75 grand a year after my expenses, making about a five or 10 grand profit or, or go and try and play for, you know, six million a week. Yeah. It's, it was It was silly. Yeah, I think I think once a lot of golfers get to the level of, I mean, the, the truly great golfers obviously aren't in it for the money, and most golfers aren't. The money is a great side benefit, you know. But you look at 
you only have to look at how good, how many times one of the true great golfers really works hard to make the cut. Like Tiger on his cut streak, that was amazing. That's There's no money, monetary involved. It's just pride, and that was just, you know, when Tiger was playing at his worst after he left Butch Harmon, he he would pull out some amazing shots to make the cut. Some of his best. Um, when I when I was playing the European Tour, Lee Westwood, Darren Clark, and Monty, they used to scrape through and make the cut, and then still nearly win. Yeah. And it was always impressive that those guys would just keep going and keep going, and you know. So I, I don't think it's a real. I don't think that's a real concern. There's never been a truly great golfer thinking about how much they're going to make with this putt or that up and down. No, it, absolutely it, not. It, it just absolutely it, it yep. cannot be. If that's why you're playing, you're yep. never going to get there. The yeah, rich, and I, the I could say the only the only times I've ever used money as a motivation in a tournament is when I have been just making the cut, and I'm sort of I can't win. I'm so far out of it. Not you know, and I look at it and I'll be like, well, if I could shoot 65 today, I might get to 20th and make this, or you know, that that yeah, would be the only time that I've ever. Yeah, an extra bit of this. What's the future of golf, do you reckon, Steve? I've never seen a seismic shift in the game as like what we've seen with Liv in terms of the professional game. And that trickles down in all sorts of ways that we can't even imagine yet, including how the game is perceived by non-golfers and the potential impacts of that. You would know yourself here in Australia, lots of public golf courses under pressure. Oh, it's a waste of space. We should do something else with that space. There's real dangers, aren't there? And all of this plays into it. What's your sort of personal feeling about the health of the game? Uh, I think, I think the game's pretty healthy just because of um, it, it. It's it's like just the appeal of the game itself, going out there and hitting the ball. It's pretty basic and people enjoy it once they get the hang of it and they hit the ball. There's certainly, you know, environmental concerns, political concerns in like closing an inner city course is it's going to hurt. But I feel like that happened. That's why Royal Melbourne's in the sand belt and not, mm. you know. All those courses, Yarra Yarra. There's no Yarra yet. There's no Yarra River near Yarra Yarra. I'm sure that used to be you know, somewhere in, in the city. And I know that like a lot of those clubs were in the Melbourne clubs and they got pushed out. So I think, I don't think golf's ever going to be an inner city game. I just think that's not reasonable that when, when those places can be used, but it doesn't mean we should close them all. No. I mean, they're, they're great green spaces, you know, um, but I think the game will survive and I think it'll do well. It doesn't mean it's, it doesn't mean that, uh, you know that it's gonna it's gonna die. I think the, the the fact when COVID it got as popular as ever in COVID because people actually realised the. Well, I guess they probably didn't have many other options, but you get out there <laughs> and you really it. enjoy true. it, and you're out. You can walk. It's it's you know. So the the question becomes: so I think, can, the, I think the, can we hang on to that? That's the question. The golf industry. Yes, I true, agree. With you. The, the game itself has never changed. The appeal of it has never changed. And those of us who've got yep. the illness have never will will never understand how you could not. But having said that, the dangers are we lose public access to the game. That would be yep. potentially fatal. That would shrink the positive. And just to take that opportunity away from people, there's lots of people out there who've never played golf who don't know. They might yep. love the game for the rest of their life. Uh, I've been in golf my, almost my entire adult life. I've never been any good at playing it, but there's things- but I think. I think- yeah. There's no doubt the public access courses, access courses are, you know, they're Great. vital to the game and um, they should be encouraged and, and supported. But, yeah. you know, it's obviously it's not always that easy, but we've, we've got some, so many good ones in Australia compared to, uh, you know, other parts of the world. It's And Australian, Steve, I don't need to tell you, have no idea how good we've got it here in terms of golf, do we? Absolutely. We do, Absolutely. <laughs> the complaining, the <laughs> things we complain about and the, the way we complain, if, if you took those people and dropped them in the US, they would not believe what the game costs and the lack yep. of access that you can have. In so I know I know. here in uh, Phoenix, some low, you know, pretty ordinary public courses were charging sort of 120, 150 around wow. when the Phoenix Open was on. And it's just, 
it's crazy. Yeah, madness, isn't it? Anyway, we could talk all day, yeah. Steve, but we won't. We're really looking forward yeah. to seeing you when you get back to Australia. It's been fabulous of you to take some time uh, today. Looking forward to seeing you back in Australia. As I'm sure you're looking forward to coming back to Australia. I really appreciate you taking the time today, and uh, thanks for all those memories. It was fabulous. No worries at all. Thank you. One of the game's genuinely most likeable people, Steve Allen, and we wish him all the best in emulating his new hero, Stephen Alka, on the Champions Tour. That's it for episode 80, but make sure you've pressed the follow button on the pod because on our next, John Huggan sits down with Golf TV royalty. If I'm, <laughs> if I'm doing a, a pick-an event, Colonial, and I trumpet the fact that Scotty Scheffler now has... Uh, ironclad grip on the FedEx Cup top spot. And I'm <laughs> yeah, really yeah, it, putting yeah. some mustard on that yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. You might, oh, will you stop, learner? Yeah, yeah. I get it. Yeah. I get it. <laughs> That's the Golf Channel's Rich Learner. Next time on The Thing About Golf. Golf.